0: and thanks for listening.
2: This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Conservation often begins at home, literally. Net zero homes are designed from the ground up to produce as much energy as they use.
3: We wanted a reasonable home that was extremely comfortable, extremely functional, and still had an extremely small carbon footprint. And the joy is, we won, we did most of the things right. Reducing our home energy use is one
2: thing, but what
4: about all the other waste we produce in our day-to-day lives? We call it trash goggles, where once you've done it, you start seeing trash everywhere.
2: Is it really possible to recycle and compost all the mountains of junk generated by our consumer lifestyles?
5: We're really trying to help everyone understand that we can create a zero-waste world.
2: Net Zero Living, up next on Climate One. How little waste could you generate in your day-to-day life? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. On today's show, we learn about how we can reduce the trash on our backs and in our backyards. Americans create an average of four and a half pounds of waste a day. But some cities are trying to get their residents to cut that to zero by recycling, composting, and being more mindful about what they consume. More than dirty sidewalks are at stake. Landfills are a big source of methane, a potent greenhouse gas that amplifies severe weather. In the first part of today's show, Greg talks trash with three people at the forefront of slimming our consumer waste lines. Kevin Drew is the residential zero waste coordinator of the San Francisco Department of Environment. Lauren Hennessy is outreach manager at Sustainable Stanford. And Diana Deem is a sustainability consultant and founder of the Trash on Your Back Challenge. Here's our conversation about getting to zero waste. Diana, let's
1: begin with you. You were doing an interview a few years ago, and you came up with this idea spontaneously of walking around with trash on your back. What prompted such a moment of insanity?
5: It was a definite moment of insanity, which turned into something pretty cool. I was um, interviewing MIT at the time. I do a radio show as well, and and, uh, it's all about solutions for the planet. And they were talking about this climate simulator tool. Anyway, one of the guys on the show was so excited. So I had to stop the show. I go, what is your passion? Why are you so excited? His name's Drew Jones. He's amazing. He's a wonderful guy. He's the executive director for MIT's climate simulation. Anyway, so he came back. He goes, back in 1989, I was at Dartmouth College. And a bunch of radical buddies and I decided to go out and see what our impact was. So they walked around with their trash for a week. And I said, you know, Drew, that sounds like an idea that needs to be recycled. And he's like, you'll do it, Ty? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. What the heck? So the next day I called about 17 really good friends. One is um, Matt Bogosian, who is um, the pollution prevention guy for US EPA. I said, hey, Matt, will you carry your trashy back for five days? So he said yes. He was the first early adopter. And what ended up happening, we had 17 people in 16 states the first year, and that was four years ago. We did it on Earth Day and every year we have an annual Earth Day thing and we would just talk about the learnings. The first year we did um, have quite an amazing turnout. The second year we had about 2,500 people from around the world, 27 states and um, six countries. So when you see Israel and Australia and you see all these little kids getting on board, we're really trying to help everyone understand that we can create a zero waste world and we can do it. Um, We were able to knock the 4.4 pounds of trash average per person down to 0.8 pounds per day, right? Just by doing this, you you get really, you don't want to carry a lot of stuff on your back because it's really heavy. So you you think of ways, and then you become very competitive. So it's turned into this very interesting thing, And, and kids are just grabbing onto this, like, in amazing ways. It's a math issue, if you think about it, you know, weighing things and, and measuring things. And, and it's also a, a science issue. So STEM is playing a huge role in this.
1: Uh, Lauren Hennessy, you created a video that caught our attention uh, as sort of a parody of a Megan Trainer video all about the base. So tell us how you came up with that video and what were you trying to do to inspire college kids to be more mindful about their ways?
6: Well, also, I'll point out that it's not just college kids. Um, we have a significant population of staff and faculty on campus, so it really needs to pertain to a wide audience. Um, so I really sought to kind of come, come up with something that would just catch. Um, and I really have Wait, to say, but,
1: but do professors know who Megan Trainer is?
6: You would not. I'm not kidding, they do. People are singing this song. Um, But I have to be honest, it really started when a friend sent me a YouTube link of a bunch of frat boys lip syncing to a Taylor Swift song. And this video had half a million hits on YouTube. And I, it, I was just sitting there thinking how they're not even doing anything. They're just mouthing the words to the song. There must be a way to get people talking about environmental and sustainable actions in the same kind of fashion. So it kind of struck me that music is this grand communicator that a lot of people don't really take advantage of. And I think it's been a crucial point that's missing in environmental communication.
1: We're going to hear just a little riff of this uh, video at Stanford. <laughs>
6: Because you know we're all about, all about no waste, about no waste
7: at Stanford. We're all about no waste, about no waste at Stanford. We're
1: all about no waste, about no waste at Stanford. We're all about no waste. So, a video riffing on a pop tune. What impact did that have, Lauren Hennessy, at Stanford?
6: It, it, well, I'm here today, aren't I? Yeah, right. We
1: we found you on the internet because of uh, this video, yes.
6: Um, So the video today on YouTube had close to 5,000 hits, which is 100 times greater than any of the other videos that were entered into the competition. Um, we far exceeded our waste minimization then in the competition than in years past. and it was uh, we doubled our participation in the competition than last year. So it uh, really went far in as far as spreading awareness.
1: Make, make it fun. Um, <laughs> Kevin, let's talk about the city of San Francisco, what has a zero waste goal. Mm-hmm. Where is San Francisco? Is zero waste really possible?
8: Well, it's that's a very interesting question, very very difficult goal that we've set for ourselves. It's very aspirational when we set it. Uh, some of us who were in the business at the time said that's a little bit aggressive, but uh, you, can't, you can't get halfway there. You've got to just go for zero. And if we get to 99, that's doing really well. But what, what your guests just talked about was exactly the kind of spreading that's got to happen. It's got to happen to people getting charged up about it and carrying their trash on their back. It's got to happen to college kids and the kids on the, uh, the other folks on the campus to find a way to, to get to zero waste. It's going to take a million little ways to get there. It's, it's like the same, it's like the organism that we are and the organism that the planet is. It takes lots of little pieces to really get everything done. You can see the big garbage truck driving by, but the bacteria in your gut is doing just as much to keep your system going as that garbage truck, and it's everything in between. So zero waste is really a, a beautiful kind of a biological construct that we still have to invent. We don't know what it is yet. Uh, everybody's asking us, you know, uh, how are you going to get there? Do you have a, a precise plan? No, we're making it up as we go along, frankly. <laughs> <And> for God's <laughs> sake, yep. let's get out there and do it. I mean, that's that's what we've just seen here. Specific mm. question: I remember
1: being in Starbucks a couple of years ago and seeing on a printed on an, uh napkin that you know, we care about the environment and waste, et cetera. And then I looked for a place to recycle that napkin at Starbucks, mm-hmm. and I couldn't find one. Mm-hmm. So does the city of San Francisco require businesses to have receptacles for compost and recycling and that they're actually in a place that a human can
8: see? Yes, we do. We, we, we require that. We, is it perfectly implemented? No, but it's, we're getting there. And actually, Starbucks is one that we've worked a lot with. I think we need to get further with them because they are they have a lot of control. They have, they have a lot of social ethic and a lot of their business so that they could be a tremendous leader. If they would make their lids and their stirs compostable along with their cups and take some of the plastic out of the lining of their cup, pretty much everything in the store would be compostable.
1: Tell us where uh, the, the stream of compost in San Francisco. If someone puts something in the compost bin at home mm-hmm. or at the office, where does it go? Tell Where's us briefly the life sure. of
8: a compost. It, 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 gets, it gets consolidated into bins in your house or your business, and it gets picked up by our ecology truck Uh, and taken down to the transfer station down by Candlestick Park where it's consolidated into a a big uh, 20 ton transfer trailer which goes about there are now 700 tons of organic material being collected every day in San Francisco and most of it is transported either to Jepson Prairie organics out near Dixon or to uh, Grover compost facility out near Merced uh, where it's turned into compost of those 700 tons, about you end up with about 350 tons of finished compost. There's a tremendous water reduction, because most of our food, most of our compost, most of our organics is water. And then that's primarily sold to uh, vineyards, uh, golf courses, organic farms. Uh, they like this compost. It's a, it's a very rich compost, because it has a, a lot of uh, meat and bones and other things. Most composts are tend to be agricultural in nature, like from uh, leftover crops or leftover Uh, agricultural products, and you don't have, they're sort of one-dimensional. So this, uh, we call it four-course compost because it has a little bit of every course in the meal in it, uh, (laughs) and it's a very rich, rich rich, uh, product because of that.
1: Lauren Hennessey, composting at Stanford?
6: We actually have a pretty high uh, ability to accept composting, but it is a voluntary composting program right now. So the buildings on campus actually have to elect to to, to participate at a building wide level. So unless you have that champion who's willing to do it, Mm -hmm. or um, there is an opportunity with the Recycle Mania campaign, we actually gave an individual the opportunity to become a compost captain for their floor. Um, So it is on a voluntary basis right now. It's not a mandatory composting program.
1: Diana Deem, you're from Orange County. You know how much composting is happening in Orange County?
5: Still getting. It's not there yet. Yeah. Not Kevin Drew, yet. why not? Why don't we Well,
8: that, it's cost. It's, is it... it? It's it. It is a certain amount. Of, it's just really political will. I mean, when you think about garbage or trash, the trucks are there. They drive around. They pick it up. I, I like to tell tell people it's just about driving it to a different location. It's right. in the same truck. It's a, it weighs about the same. Um, I, there are some programs in Orange County that uh, friends of ours have started, uh, Stephanie Barger and Sorry. Zero West uh, group down there, and they focused on restaurants and, and grocery stores first, because that's what we did. It's just where the concentration is, and you don't have to drive around and pick up a thimble full. You can pick up a lot and, in and a restaurant and a, and a uh, uh, produce store, and then, you, and then you can kind of expand from there. So there's many good examples like that, and it's happening. Uh, there's more happening than you know because the industrial people don't want to pay to throw it into landfill. That's very expensive. Right. You can pay less and go to a compost facility, and you avoid all those meth, that, that methane.
1: Diana Deem, a lot of kids, certain generations, learned recycling from their parents. Maybe the current kids are learning composting the way you and I learned recycling. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. tell us how kids are getting involved in your campaign.
5: Well, you know, it's interesting. when you, 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 One of the things I love to say is, is love them, educate them, and get the heck out of the way. Kids get it. What I'm always amazed at is these K-12 students, they, they are fearful. They're, they know that there's an issue, right? And it's thanks to our teachers. It's thanks to our parents. It's thanks to the messaging that we're getting out there. I think media is so important to get this message out there. We've, we've had some kids come back with some amazing statements on what they've learned in just collecting their trash to understand what their own personal impact mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Then what happens, which is really interesting, they go to their parents and they say, you know what, mommy, daddy, we're only going to buy compostable, biodegradable mm. or, or recycled products. That's the power of the pocketbook that these kids are getting. It's pretty interesting.
1: Let's talk about uh, another institution that's getting it. You say that the Super Bowl was really zero waste. Talk about professional sports, which really has a big influence on pop culture.
0: Huge.
5: And that's like the music and the sports and the, you know, doing something crazy like carrying your trash in your back. But one of the things about when we first started, Scott Jenkins, he was the um, operations director for, or VP or something, for um, the Seattle Mariners. And if you think about a stadium, it's a city in itself, right? Mm. City in itself. So he was able to start down the path. He also co-founded the Green Sports Alliance. He's on my board, which I'm so thankful to have him because he sees the the fan engagement opportunity here with sports, but the Seattle Mariners became zero waste three years ago. No, I'm sorry, 98% zero waste. So they go back in their supply chain, they look at what they're buying, and then they'll take that, and when you go into the stadium, whether it's a hot dog, it's going to be compostable, whether it's a, a container... The supply chain now says everything, nothing goes to landfill. So Major League Sports is getting Major League involved, mm. <laughs> and they're getting very competitive. Scott left and went to the Atlanta Falcons, and he's designing and building, getting back to what we talked, what you guys talked about earlier, was how do we make a net zero stadium? And how do we make it 100% zero waste? Mm. So there's a lot happening, and when you <clears> go in there as a fan, you experience that feeling, plus they're making money at it. Right, this this whole trash on your back piece, you know, 4.4 pounds of trash per day. Right, we knocked that down to 0.8 pounds per day. Just take 50 percent. That's an 82 percent reduction. The U.S. spends 12 billion dollar an expected 12 billion dollars a year in waste management. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. we take 50 percent in in one week. We were able to knock that down, and it's a six billion dollar you know 50 percent six billion dollar opportunity for the nation. Wouldn't we rather put that in schools and, and compost facilities yeah, and that's, you know
8: that's what we're doing that's what that's that's the movement and, and it's it's really gratifying to hear it moving into the sports area into the kids schools and all that because it's kind of the hippie dream but it's it's you know it's being normalized it's being uh, really globalized.
5: Girl, wanna take out the
2: We're listening to a Climate 1 conversation about getting to zero waste. Up next, we'll hear more from our panel of waste reduction experts, and Greg Dalton will talk to a University of Michigan student who's walking the zero waste walk.
4: Living zero waste you certainly still use things. You just don't use unnecessary things. You don't ask for production that didn't need to happen.
2: That's coming up when Climate 1 continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about getting to zero waste with Kevin Drew, Residential Zero Waste Coordinator of the San Francisco Department of Environment, Lauren Hennessy, Outreach Manager at Sustainable Stanford, and Diana Deem, founder of the Trash on Your Back Challenge. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. We're going to go to
1: our lightning round. Diana Deem, this is yes or no. You are a closet hippie. (laughs) Yes. You... (laughs) You have gone dumpster diving.
5: Yes I have. Is. Okay.
1: Uh, Lauren Hennessy, pizza leftover from frat parties makes good compost. Yes. <laughs> Stanford students prefer weed grown with solar power.
6: <laughs> uh, yes.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, Kevin Drew, as mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom started the city's pioneering composting program, As lieutenant governor, he has a lot of time on his hands and could make a good compost cop.
2: Yes.
1: (laughs) A compostable cup or fork thrown into a landfill will biodegrade back into the soil. Yes or no? Not Uh, no. Okay, we got a list here. It's okay to put the following items in the compost bin in San Francisco. Meat.
8: Yes. Bones. Yep. Clamshells. Yes. Uh, Clamshell, you mean the... You mean from clams? or Real clams, that, not, not the, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Okay. Clam, shell, <laughs> clam shells, yes.
1: Pistachio shells. Yes. Paper salad containers. Yeah. Dog poo. No. Okay. All right, that ends our lightning <laughs> round. Can um, you talk
6: about the difference between biodegradable and compostable? Good because point. Because this yeah, is it's... very frustrating for me. And yeah. I must say, I've been trying to purchase compostable balloons for an event that we're having, and mm. the amount of people who will say that they have something that is Compostable and then when you say compostable or biodegradable and they're not quite sure is astounding. But that's an important confusing distinction. labels and biodegradable.
1: Yeah. Like, I mean, in a thousand years, yeah, sure, yeah. The biodegradable doesn't
8: mean anything. Compostable is a very strict standard with yeah. an ASTM certification. And we've had to get legislation passed in California to require that word compostable mean what it means and that biodegradable doesn't mean anything.
2: Kevin Drew. Residential Zero Waste Coordinator of the San Francisco Department of Environment on getting to zero waste. How much would you have to change your lifestyle in order to cut the amount of trash you produce to zero? Samuel McMullen is a student at the University of Michigan who embarked on a one-year journey to do just that. Samuel is the co-founder of Live Zero Waste, an environmental nonprofit that helps people give the zero waste lifestyle a try. Greg Dalton spoke to him to find out what it's really like to live a zero waste life.
1: Tell me about the first zero-waste meal that you tried to have. How did that happen? Tell me about that first meal.
4: Yeah, it was right after we gave a presentation to sort of launch the Live Zero Waste idea. And right after that, we went down into the, the lobby of the NRDC in Beijing and went into the restaurant and had to sort of negotiate our first zero-waste meal, which was has been repeated many times since then in my life and it was just a matter of asking if we could have the silverware with no napkin wrapped around it at that particular place. But actually, the next dinner we had, the silverware came wrapped completely in plastic. Um, The silverware, the plates, the bowls, everything was shrink-wrapped in plastic um, because in Beijing, I think foreigners are worried about germs. So they were sort of proving to people how clean they were. Um, And so we had to ask them for... Serving, If we could eat out of the serving dishes, and I ran home. The apartment was not too far. I ran home and got chopsticks that were not wrapped in plastic. So that was an adventure right off the bat.
1: How do people react when you ask for no straw, no plastic wrapping? Do they uh, roll their eyes at you and think, oh, what a pain this guy is?
4: Yeah, it depends entirely on how you ask. And I've asked many different ways. The best reactions I get are when I preface it with... Um, listen, I know I'm doing this zero-waste challenge and it's a little bit weird and going to make your job hard, but um, do you mind giving me a water without a straw or this burger without a paper wrapping or sandwich or whatever? Um, but yeah, sometimes if you just ask, if you say, can I have a, a water with no straw or this silverware without a nap- napkin around it, you get some eye rolls and muttered things as they leave. <laughs>
1: And what's the purpose of doing this? Is this to sort of live the zero-waste life for your own identity and, and uh, comfort, or is it to change other people's thinking and, and change something bigger than yourself?
4: It's components of both, for sure. The impetus was certainly the first thing you said, which was that we were trying to sort of live out our values and we had, were working on an environmental law paper at the time, studying renewable energy policy. And so we were feeling great about ourselves as environmentalists, but started realizing that we weren't really doing much in our own lives to address the problems that we were writing about. Um, So that was our reason for doing it. And then as we started encouraging other people to try it, it became much more about the idea that these kinds of changes measured on an individual level don't make much sense. Like it doesn't really make sense to go zero waste if you're the only one doing it because you save a lot, but you don't save that much. Whereas if you measure your community metrics and you try to encourage other people to do it and encourage them to get their friends to do it and get everyone on board, then you start to get real numbers that you can be proud of and that you can say are actually changing something. So it's definitely turned into a a form of like personalized activism, um, and an activism that's a little bit less in people's faces about why they should change their mind and more just about changing your own behavior and role modeling.
1: Yeah, the old Gandhi for it, be the change that you want to see. Yeah. So how many people are living zero waste? You started in Ann Arbor where you've been going to school. Uh, how many people have uh, been following you?
4: We're at 305 pledges. Um, and they're spread out they're all over so it's 26 countries now um where people are trying to live it and we're trying to get get people hooked up with others that are living zero waste near them so like we have pledges in egypt and we have no idea what it's like to live zero waste in egypt so we try to encourage those people to get in touch with each other and find the resources um, in their area
1: So how do you handle uh, things like Christmas, you know, uh, those sorts of things? You give gifts without any wrapping on them or do you give gifts at all?
4: Yeah. So the, our, our version of waste or our definition of waste is pretty all encompassing. So um, any new product we count as waste because of the eventual, you know, it's been produced and eventually it will go to landfill somewhere. Um, So anything, anything new is off limits, but Thrift stores are totally in bounds. Antique shops. I do a lot of Groupon giving, so giving experiences, and that ends up people actually think you're really thoughtful if you do an experience with them for the holidays. Uh-huh. Really value your time, or I've I do web design, so I'll I'll give people websites, and there people love that.
1: How would you describe your social group and your quality of life? I mean, do you hang out with people that have more material possessions than you do? The latest whatever is, you know, cool to have in college these days? Um, oh, gosh, and- yeah.
4: Absolutely. Um, I'm in a, in a comedy improv troupe, and that was a huge blessing, actually, because they don't care what you're doing. They're going to make fun of it regardless, and that actually made <laughs> it much more accessible to everyone else around me. So I'd often go out to meals with this, a person named Guy Majar. He would make fun of me in front of the waiter. And he and the waiter would sort of get on a team making fun of me. And then I <laughs> didn't have to explain to the, the wait staff that I was doing this thing they already knew. And they, th- it was the same result. They brought me my stuff without waste. But they got a laugh in as well, which is very helpful. But yeah, I mean, my social group, it hasn't changed because of this. But they're definitely aware. And we do like Secret Santas and whoever draws my name Gets made fun of because they have to get a zero waste gift, figure out something. Um, so it, it, I think if you if you handle it well and you're not annoying about it, it can be a, a really fun thing for a whole social group to get behind.
1: And just to be clear, so if you give someone a bottle of tequila uh, for Secret Santa, uh, and that tequila bottle is recycled, is that count as zero waste?
4: Um, So we also have included recycling and waste just because our our main focus is really the production end of things. So as long as something is produced, that's like just because of how much environmental load is upstream of the actual purchasing decision. um, We thought it made sense to include recycling because it still has all that all the production of that item still happened, um, even though in the post-consumer end of the life cycle, um, it's, it's recycled and reused, um, or, or melted down or whatever. But we, so we've decided to exclude or include recycling in our definition of trash.
1: Well, that's remarkable because a lot of people, even in you know liberal eco places like California, say, oh, I recycle, so it's okay. I can buy that because it's recyclable. And you're changing right. the definition of recyclable as waste. And so all of us live in this, what we think is a eco-righteous coastal lifestyle, and not so much, uh, showing up by a student in Michigan. <laughs> <Okay>.
4: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope it's not seen as showing up, but um, there's a valid point there and something to be aware of that recycling is not is not innocent and that and it really like recycling doesn't get at the issue that I think environmentalists have which is that our economy is based on extraction and based on sort of exploiting other people's countries and their natural resources and their environments for our own um, our own gain and if you look at it that way then anything that's produced anywhere is suspect and and a target for Environmental action.
1: So, are you calling for like a, a change in capitalism, overthrowing our consumer society?
4: Yes. Yeah. I, in short, I, we get this a lot of like, well, if if everyone is buying used, then there won't be any economy, and um, that's fair and and valid. But I think what the the counterpoint that I always make is, if someone if someone's job is producing straws, that's we're wasting that humans talent like we shouldn't have people whose job it is to produce straws or to produce things that we use for 15 seconds you know like napkins that's not a good use of our economic power and i think we can if we free ourselves of producing those sorts of things we can start to focus on things that um will last much longer and we can we can produce things that we need we i mean living zero waste you certainly still use things you use soap you use all kinds of stuff you just don't use unnecessary things you don't ask for production that didn't need to happen
1: so describe to me like your bathroom and and your where you live so w- what does it look like how many things do you have how many how bare an existence are you leading as a zero waste lifestyle
4: yeah so I've been living zero waste for two and a half years now and I haven't <laughs> noticed much of a difference in clutter um, I think anyone who knows me will attest that <laughs> I'm not a A clean roomie Um, so it's just changed what I have has changed certainly Um, and where I got it mostly has changed so like sheets I'll get from the Salvation Army Um, I have more bags than I used to uh, more containers reusable containers Um, my bathroom is a toothbrush that I got from a donation pile at Standing Rock while I was there Um, (laughs) So there were donations frozen into all the snowbanks. So I figured that was fair game because they were getting bulldozed, unfortunately. Um, and a little pot of baking soda for toothpaste. My shower is a bar of soap and a washcloth. But uh, otherwise, I don't think you could look at my life and say, oh, this guy's got something going on. Like There's, there's something significantly different. It's just the, the procurement aspect is different.
1: Okay, this lifestyle that you're leading wouldn't be telegraphed by someone looking at you. They wouldn't say, oh, this guy's leading a radically alternative, different lifestyle. You look like a regular guy. Uh, right. Samuel, do you think you'll still be living this lifestyle when you get out in the world, when you're in your 30s? And uh, it's one thing for a college student to live this zero waste uh, lifestyle, often college students living on a, on a tight budget and simple. Yeah. Do you think you're going to carry this into adulthood and maybe even the comforts of middle life?
4: I think it would be difficult not to continue living this way after college. It, once you, We call it trash goggles With the, when people pledge, we talk to them. And one thing we say is you get these trash goggles where once you've done it, even just for a day, once you've done it, you start seeing trash everywhere. And that's the like golden nugget that we're after is getting people to that point where they're like, wow, a lot of things we do create trash, and none of them are really necessary. Um, so I think after after I leave college, it's not going to be much of a much of a difference. And I've actually been helped a lot. One of the th- things we offer through our organization is mentorship, and so a lot of people have come with challenges that I don't really have. So moving and Uh, dealing with children and cats and all kinds of things. And I've been mentoring them through something that I have no idea what to do about it, but I've done research on it and I can sort of imagine my way through it. Um, So solving those problems creatively with my mentees has really helped prepare me for whatever happens next.
1: And what's one thing an average person can do uh, to reduce the, the trash in their lifestyle if they were to say, as you say, put on those trash goggles? What's a simple thing that a person could do?
4: Um, so one big differentiator that we have that we try to hammer home is that changing little little things is can be effective and you can you can get a long way with a little change um, but it doesn't accomplish the same cognitive shift that um, doing a radical changes so we really advocate for completely eliminating trash from your life for a day just try it see what happens um, and then and, and so like by doing it by time period rather than by item so like If you were to eliminate um, aluminum cans, that would be great. Aluminum is a very high-intensity thing to make. But you wouldn't experience the same, like, wow, everything is made of aluminum because not everything is made of aluminum. So doing a big shift for a day, I think, is the best thing that I can offer in terms of sort of like a lesson learned, like shifting shifting your mindset for a little bit and then going back to your life and you have that knowledge then, oh, man, when I was doing my zero waste day, I wasn't using this and now I'm using it again. You have you sort of pay attention to it in a way that you wouldn't if it were a small shift.
1: So do a comprehensive shift for a short period of time for the biggest impact. Samuel, thanks for
4: joining us on Climate One. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Maybe
5: someday by
2: zero. Samuel McMullen a student at the University of Michigan and co-founder of Live Zero Waste. This is Climate One. Coming up, we'll hear about how waste reduction literally begins at home.
3: My wife's requirement was it had to be beautiful. And then I was, it has to be functional and comfortable, and let's see how energy efficient we can make it.
2: Net Zero Homes, when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One, and the ultimate in energy conservation, a home that produces as much energy as it uses. To talk about these net-zero energy homes, Greg Dalton is joined by three people at the vanguard. Anne Edminster is a green home consultant and author of Energy Free, Homes for a Small Planet. Daniel Simons is a principal architect with David Baker Associates. And Sven Thiessen is owner of a net-zero home in Palo Alto, California. Here's our conversation about getting to zero right at home.
1: Sven Thiessen, let's begin with you. What possessed you to want to (laughs) pursue a net zero energy home?
3: So as a chemical engineer and someone who's done a lot of climate work, I wanted to prove that you could have essentially your cake and eat it too and that you could have in my, one of my first, my wife's requirement was it had to be beautiful. And so it was beautiful. And then I was, it has to be functional and comfortable and let's see how energy efficient we can make it. And so. Our small 5.9 kilowatt system powers the house. It also powers 10,000 miles of electric car, carbon-free, zero-emission driving. And the house uses roughly 25% of the energy of an average house in Palo Alto. People don't notice, except in the summertime when it's really hot, they walk in and say, oh, this is really nice and cool. You must have your air conditioning cranked. And I get to say with this wonderful grin, I don't have an air conditioning system. All I have is good building orientation, a heck of a lot of insulation, and some shading on the sunny side. That's it.
1: Do you have to be like Jimmy Carter and wear uh, sweaters in the winter?
3: So that was the whole point was to be able to prove that we could have comfortable, affordable, functional, and that you wouldn't have to sacrifice anything. So no, I wear no shoes and t-shirt and shorts pretty much all year round inside. And it's nice and warm. And we don't, again, we use 25% of the energy of a conventional house. And it's all generated in excess by our solar panels. And it's not a huge solar system.
1: And Edminster, you wrote the book on net zero homes. Tell us about your home. And do you have an 80 inch TV?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, we have a rather petite TV, and can't quite even figure out how to use it these days. <laughs> My teenage son won't give us the answer. So we've given up we now watch on the iPad.
1: <laughs> hip, yeah.
0: So that that's one of the measures that we take to reduce energy in our home.
1: iPad versus a TV. Okay. Right. Any, any other exotic uh, features?
0: Exotic. Uh, we have we have a living roof. Um, we do have a solar array. It's quite petite 2.4 kilowatts. We are not at net zero yet. We're doing that sort of incrementally. So we have a few stages left to go.
7: Daniel Simons, tell us about your your home. And- um, well, so I actually don't live in a net zero home, but we've designed a couple of them. Um, I think the key with getting to net zero or just being efficient is trying to figure out how to reduce the loads, like Sven was saying. Like the goal is really to make the buildings use as little energy as possible. I mean, any reduction that you can make just you know, switching from an incandescent bulb to an LED bulb, or insulating your house, or upgrading the windows, all of these things you know, incrementally reduce the energy consumption of the entire built environment. And um, when, you, when you get it down really, really low, then it's easy to put a small PV system on the roof and power the whole thing.
1: And Edminster, we replaced the windows on our home, and my head started to ache with all the R factor. There's factors that measure the light that comes through and the energy that doesn't come through, and it was mind-boggling. And I was very motivated, geeky, like, I got to do this, right? I have to walk the walk. But it was very complex. How many people really want to bother with the complexity? And that's just one piece of a house, right? Changing the windows is no simple
0: thing. It's true, I think, right now, one of the unique opportunities we have is it's still very much an innovator's world, zero energy, and therefore, the people who are willing to play are also willing to sort of absorb a certain amount of that geekiness. And they are, in effect, paving the path for the others in the future to sort of demonstrate what works, what's a good investment, what was maybe an uh, interesting idea, but not necessarily widely applicable. So we're in that process right now. All of us who are pioneering in this field are still kind of winnowing those ideas and identifying the ones that are sort of winners across the board.
1: So what are some of the winners?
0: Oh well. Sheep's full insulation, <laughs> yeah. well, really good insulation. If you know yeah. the right people, thank you. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> No, as Fenn said, lots of really well installed. I think this is one of the things that is sort of unfortunate. Is some of the most effective things we can do are the least sexy. So, really good job of air sealing. Really good job of insulation installation, and that's just not glamorous. But it has tremendous paybacks in comfort, energy reduction, and so forth. Also reducing um, potential durability issues related to condensation and moisture. So there are a lot of good reasons to do it. Caulking
1: doesn't get a lot of respect. We put uh, (laughs) uh, solar panels on first because I think they're cooler and sexier, and then did the the ceiling of the garage, et cetera. That's Uh actually backwards, right?
7: Uh Yeah. I mean, I think so. Yeah, I think it's definitely. And I, I think that the You know, you have to be a little bit more careful when you start really super insulating the building envelope because there are, you know, moisture management things that you have to take into account. And there are, you know, you when you really seal a building for air, you have to make sure that there's fresh air. But none of the technologies to do that are that cutting edge. I mean, it's stuff that people have been doing for years. It's just different from the conventional way that buildings are built in this country now. And so it is, it's just sort of shifting the paradigm slightly and thinking about what's valuable in a new home as being that it has to have, you know, continuous exterior rigid insulation and it has to have an HRV and it has to have these things which, you know, are really jargony and probably don't you don't you don't really need to know them as consumers. You more just need to know that it's possible. And, and push the people who are building your house to, to look for them.
1: And Edminster, um, let's talk about where someone should go. I want to improve the energy efficiency in my home. Where do I go, where do
0: I start? Is this a softball for me to pitch my book?
1: You can pitch book, <laughs> <but beyond> your book, <laughs> other than your book,
0: yes. Um, where do you know? I, I am a board member of the Net Zero Energy Coalition, and I think that's an excellent place to start. We are online at netzeroenergycoalition.com and you can peruse our membership directory. That's a great place. We have folks all across North America. You're welcome to email me and I can tell you all about everybody I know who's involved in this world.
1: Sven let's talk about cost. This is perceived to be an elite thing for uh, people who got extra money, deep pockets. How much did you spend on your house?
3: Uh, We spent, the rough estimate is less than 5% and above and beyond what we would have paid for the house. So it's not a huge amount. The way I look at it was an investment in green jobs because they spent a lot more time on the framing and they spent a lot more time putting in insulation. We spent a lot more time doing air checks, those sort of pressurized tests to make sure the building was extremely well-sealed. All that caulking paid off. And um, I think people, you know, how much does a car cost? Well, you can buy a a new car for $18,000 or half a million. What sort of car do you want? And so we wanted a home. It's only 2,200 square feet. There's four of us living in it. We wanted a reasonable home that was extremely comfortable, extremely functional, and still had an extremely small carbon footprint. And then the the joy is we won. We did most of the things right. It is really comfortable.
1: Daniel Simons, are these homes an elite thing only?
7: Uh, I mean, you know, to a certain extent, yes. I mean, how many people actually, you know, hire an architect and design and build their own home? I mean, and I think that um, as we move into a more sustainable future you know single-family homes are a thing that probably aren't the most sustainable model for living i mean we probably should be building higher density we probably should be living more in cities Um, and there is a point at which buildings get tall enough that it's actually really i mean i would say impossible for them to be net zero you know i mean up to a six-story building maybe but you know when you start getting high-rises there's just not enough roof area to power it with PVs. But that, like I was saying before, that doesn't mean that making those buildings super energy efficient isn't still a really good goal. And, um, and hopefully, you know, as we move forward into this more sustainable future, more people will have the option of not going to some great effort to hiring an architect, but rather just picking the net zero home as the one that they buy or rent. And when that happens, I think it will be more accessible to, to everyone.
1: Daniel Simons is a principal at David Baker Architects in San Francisco. We're talking about net zero homes at Climate One. Uh, Anne Edminster, one of the critiques of net zero homes is that they are this suburban single family home. But you say that there's actually some urban examples, and it's not just this sort of suburban home with lots of roof area for solar, and et cetera. Tell us about the urban application.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, one of our real rock stars in the Net Zero Energy Coalition is a a man named Sean Armstrong who is developing multifamily affordable housing that is reaching net zero energy up in Arcata. So these are unit buildings with twenty six fifty units, and Sean has been finishing these projects and reaching these goals for about the last three years. So, and one of our earliest projects here in the Bay Area was a zero lot line, very small townhome over in Oakland.
1: Zero lot line means
0: what? Means wall to wall, houses built right up next to each other. So it's not the sort of suburban castle in the moat model, um, much more dense, even though it's a single family home, really different model.
1: And on the cost issue, you know, uh, Sven Thiessen said 5%. Is that what people think about, you know, in terms of the cost premium for net zero? Or is it
0: I only wish that's what they thought about. There really is, I think, a very widespread thought that there's a dramatic premium for zero net energy. My belief and my experience is that there is no cost premium because any commissioned project, you're given a charge and a budget, and you either meet that charge within the budget or you don't, and if you don't, you're generally off the job. So all of the projects that I've worked on Zero net energy hasn't been achieved accidentally. It's been part of the initial design charge. So we meet it within budget. Doesn't cost extra any more than the kitchen sink would cost extra if you were being asked to remodel a kitchen.
1: Right, but as as, uh, Daniel said earlier, very few Americans these days start from scratch. They probably buy a house or remodel a house. How about about the upgrade path, getting to zero with an existing building? You're doing it incrementally. Is that slow and painful and costly?
0: It's slow and costly. (laughs) Personally, I think it's really fun. (laughs) I wouldn't call it painful at all. But um, yeah, there has to be a certain commitment. You know, we're doing it for philosophical reasons. On the other hand, um, I'm a great believer in what I call opportunistic remodeling, which is if you're thinking about remodeling for whatever reason, there are always ancillary opportunities that you may not be aware of that you can take advantage of If you're already planning to do X, then you can do Y at the same time.
1: So let's go to uh, audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, Thanks.
6: I'm expanding the definition of home. Home from uh, a single family home to like home of kids, meaning schools, kindergartens, home of uh, sick people, hospitals, uh, home of inmates, uh, prisons, and home of the worker bees, like being the office buildings. So I'm just curious if you have any examples of, like, net zero in that, like, arena, so of, like, the larger uh, buildings.
1: Institutional owners have a big incentive to save energy on things? Daniel There's Simons. a
7: great, um, <clears throat> the West Berkeley Library is net zero energy. It's a really great building, and they have a, they have a dashboard. Um, but uh, but it's, a, it's a really nice library as well. There's also um, a manufacturer of modular um, classrooms that just came out with a net zero energy module, so that when you're doing the modulars on your local elementary school, they don't have to be those horrible little white boxes that they usually buy. They can be really nice and um, have no energy use. So yeah, I think there is there, there are tons of examples out there.
1: Interesting. Let's have our next question at Climate One. Thank you.
4: Um, so many people in San Francisco rent, including myself and my three housemates and I pay our utility bill. And in this situation, our landlord has no incentive to retrofit our building, which is an old Victorian building. So my question is, have you thought about this dilemma of decoupling, and is there any way to address it?
0: And then comes up with solar as well. Really challenging question. Um, I think that there are certain things that the occupant does control, all of the stuff we call plug loads. So. You may or may not have the opportunity to decide about what appliances you're going to use. When we do a better job with building enclosures, we find that increasingly the loads are dominated by things like electronics. Um, When you don't have the opportunity to have an impact on the enclosure, it's a little bit tough, but there's an interesting phenomenon. Lawrence Berkeley Lab did a study a couple of years ago where they looked at 10- so-called deep energy retrofits. So this essentially is what Daniel was talking about earlier, without the solar necessarily, but we're really working on getting the loads down. And one of the interesting conclusions that they uh, arrived at was that there are two primary prongs to the strategy for achieving zero net energy, one being behavioral and the other being technological. And so depending on which case study they were looking at, the solutions were dominated by either the technological or the behavioral approaches. So I'd say as a renter, you're kind of left with the behavioral as your primary strategy, unfortunately. So, but there are no zero net energy buildings without zero net energy occupants. Last question. Welcome to Climate One.
4: Hello, thank you. I have the opposite of the uh, landlord-tenant problem. I have a great landlord, and she would like to do these things, but I receive all the benefits and she's been gradually painfully retrofitting is are there any arrangements happening or can you imagine ways that the incentives could shift so that landlords really do have an advantage to doing this where the tenant receives so much of the benefit
1: I mean if, if a landlord improves the building envelope and they're paying the utility bills don't they benefit from better windows and ceiling yeah, but a lot of thing?
7: times they don't pay the utility right.
0: bills. they don't
1: pay the tenants <laughs> yeah. pay the utility yeah. bills yeah. so there's a problem it's I don't a, care cuz you're paying, you don't care cuz I'm paying. How do we solve that?
7: It's It's no a really I mean it's a, it's a huge issue and we design a lot of multifamily housing and the whole, you know, incentive metering thing that has come up a couple times is really difficult to navigate um, for a number of reasons. Like photovoltaic systems are really difficult or not difficult, but it's difficult to work with PG&E to allow you to put one on a roof and to and to feed, you know, 15 or 20 or 100 units in the building because um, they like to just go back into one meter, which is usually uh, not for the residents. Um, so it's, it's a difficult thing. I mean, I think that there are economic models out there that can show where if you're renting um, and you can prove the utility burden for that renter is lower, that the rent can be higher. And even with affordable housing, that's the case. So there are ways that it could incent people, but um, in an existing situation like you described, it would be very difficult to do. I mean, maybe you could figure out some way of splitting the difference with your landlord, you know, where if you could show that you save 20 bucks a month, you give them 10 or something like that.
2: Greg Dalton has been talking about Net Zero Homes with Ann Edminster, author of Energy Free, Homes for a Small Planet. Daniel Simons, a principal architect with David Baker Associates, and Sven Thiessen, who owns a Net Zero home in Palo Alto, California. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.
1: Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirschner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.